I am the might before the sword, the tremors in the spear shaft. I craft my ways from blazes of firestorms, absorb the failings of deadened ends to render the floors I dance upon. I am the spaces between applause, the roars of hearts running through heaven's halls. I breathe the forms of light and silence, stall the course of cosmic riots. I am the glory of the giants Manaslu, Sagamatha, watchmen of the Asian plains. They yield my name, made famous through the cries of albatross flocks inflamed in Pacific fires. I am dressed in the spray of Nevada dunes, clothed in the shadows of Sahara caves. I am the light of lunar flames, fleshing the rains of Amazonia. I paint the trains of Antarctic quests, release dominion to desert Panthera. I authorize the remains of Aztec and Inca that bloom through the visions of mountain tribes. I ride the skylines, breathe the signs, ignite the paths of astronomy's eyes. I am the unheard, heard in the storms that burn on my words. I am the yearned for. I am the word. I am the truth they call release. When the darkness flares and starts to speak, I sculpt the shades of daybreak. It is me you seek. So how y'all doing tonight? I like that. Was, that was warm. Thank you so much. Well, listen, we are going to go after tonight kind of an angle in this series that we haven't gone after yet. This is our sixth week of talking about seeking God, what that looks like, what it looks like to pursue God, to develop a relationship with, uh, with him, to get to know him more, to actually seek him. And tonight what I want to talk about is a reason why you may think you can't seek him. What might keep you from seeking him? And it's going to be something that I believe all of us are going to be able to relate to, all of us are going to understand Because I would say that one of the main reasons why a lot of us think we can't seek him is whenever we do something wrong. Maybe you came in this place tonight and your theology is telling you that you've done something wrong so you can't seek God. Or you said something bad so you can't seek him. Or something's off in your world or something's off in your spirit. Or maybe you're feeling a little bit of a sense of guilt. Or maybe you've ever felt that before and that would cause you to say that you can't seek him. And tonight what we're going to talk about is the reality that that's false. Because... All of us know what it's like, I believe, to feel guilty. Um, Yes, am I just, I'm by myself. All right, I suck and y'all don't. That's cool. Totally fine. Had a moment recently where I felt guilty, where I did something uh, that I wish I didn't. Um, I said something, actually, in front of a crowd of hundreds of people that I immediately wish I could have taken back. Like, you ever had the moment where you say something, and it's like you envision the words going out of your mouth, and you just want to stretch, and you're like, no! Dear God, anything but getting to their ears. And it's always too late, right? Because it's like toothpaste. You can't put it back in. I had one of those on a stage in front of hundreds of people a few months ago. I said something that um, was just real bad. But see, I felt bad about it because I was afraid of, of kind of, the looming judgment that would come after I said it. You know what I mean? Like, you're never actually feeling bad about what you did. Really, you feel bad about the possibility of getting caught. That's really all it is. Well, I got caught on video. Here you, here you go. Awesome. Well, how y'all doing this morning? 
Yes, you should be hype. It's early on a Saturday morning and you're here. That's a great thing. Welcome to the Next Gen Winter Training. We are glad that you are here. My name is Matt Hayes. I'm the pastor of C12 here at the church. So really all of this, yeah, f*** you, f*** you. Uh, Really all of this is for me, so f*** you. Uh, Because all the work that you do just makes what I get do a lot easier, so f*** you. I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Uh, But I I love getting to be in this room. I've been at 12 Stone about seven and a half years, and I've had some different roles with the N-Next Gen as well as C12, so I know personally the value of the that you do. And, And here's the reality. If you look around, this is why this morning is a little bit unique. I would just like to be real clear for anyone in the room that might be like, sweet, did he, like, he's done. Did he really? Or if you're listening to the podcast, uh, I did not actually say those words. Just newsflash. Uh, David Hendricks thought he'd be really creative and take my words of saying thank you and turning it around and making it sound like I was dropping F-bombs on everybody um, that works in Next Gen in our entire church. The real bad part of this is not they got it on video. It's that they decided to show it at our all-staff meeting a few weeks ago. Yeah. And so the executive pastor of the church, Dan Ryland, my, like, my boss's boss's boss, saw the video before all-staff and didn't know what was going on. He was like, I, is that real? Did he? And they were like, no, Dan, it's a joke. He was like, Oh, sweet Jesus, I thought I, thought I was going to have to fire him, like, in the world. No, I, I did not say those words. Um, I, I didn't say those words because I know better. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not going to get up here and do that. I, I might say some stupid stuff in front of y'all that you're like, did he really? Yeah, I did. But I didn't do that because I know better. But see, the truth is, sometimes we still do things and say things even when we know better. Even when we know better and we shouldn't do it, we do it anyways. We say things. We do things. And immediately we know with that internal compass of of morality in our hearts, we know that was wrong. This wasn't right. I wish that went differently. I want to turn it around. It can be that you say something to somebody. Maybe you actually do cuss somebody out like that. Like, it's epic. And I'm not even talking about on Twitter, all right? Because you're so brave. You can do it on, no. I mean, in person, maybe you actually do that to somebody. Or maybe you decide that you want to cross a line with that girl or that guy, or you want to drink a little bit too much, or you want to cheat on your test. Finals are coming up. Have any of you already finished your finals? Mm, that's right. And they all hate you. Just want you to know that. Uh, don't like you anymore. But see, anytime we give into that temptation to just to do whatever it is that we want, whether we know it's right or not, whether we know if we should do it or not, when we follow through in that, what happens is we do something wrong, and then immediately there's a wave. At some point, for me it was immediate, oftentimes, and maybe it's days later, maybe it's months later, but sometimes something will come, and it's a wave of guilt, of knowing, shouldn't have done that, wish it didn't happen that way. Wish I hadn't done that. And maybe you came in here tonight feeling guilty. I've I walked into so many church services in my life feeling guilty. I remember there was one time when I was in high school, I did something real stupid with some friends. And later that night, some of my other friends that weren't there were like, hey, we're going to 722, this thing that a lot of people went to that were in college. And we shouldn't have gone to, but we went anyways because there were college girls there. So we were like, hey, we're going to go. And so we went to 722 to worship Jesus, and yet... I almost didn't go because of what I had just done. 
I was like, I can't go worship God. Like, I just did, I just did this. See, it's the guilt that sometimes keeps us from running after him. And we feel guilty because there is a sense of, of judgment that we know we deserve. We do something wrong, we know there's a judgment that we probably deserve. And this is the trajectory whenever we do something wrong. We sin, and then we feel guilty, and then we hide from God. That's, that is the trajectory. You sin, and then you feel guilty, and then you hide from God. And that's been the trajectory since the beginning. Because in the garden, when Adam and Eve decided that they would actually listen to the serpent and eat the fruit, and they disobeyed God and they sinned, and then they uh, were awoken to what they did and they started to feel guilty, and then they went and they ran and they hid from God. And it's the same thing that, that happens within us whenever we sin. Sin causes you to want to go into deeper darkness. You want to hide whenever you do that. And what I want to talk about tonight is the reality that, that that doesn't have to be the case. That doesn't have to be the trajectory. You don't have to do that. See, if you've been here for like, I don't know, two weeks probably, you've heard me say, you don't have to, come to, you don't have to get clean before you come to Jesus. You come to Jesus and he'll make you clean. And tonight I want to talk about the reality of, but why is that? Because that wasn't always the case. That was not always the case. And yet that's true of us today that you don't have to get clean before you come to Jesus. You come to Jesus and he makes you clean because of one word, his mercy. Mercy. And so tonight I want to talk about mercy, the reality of mercy. This is the definition of mercy. Mercy is compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. Mercy says, I can punish you. I have the ability to bring harm to you because of what you've done to me, and yet I'm going to withhold doing that. Rather than do that, I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to show compassion. And so because of the mercy of Jesus, we don't have to go and get clean anymore before we come to God. We just come to God. He makes us clean. But that wasn't always the case. Because see, our sin causes a problem. When we sin, I don't know if you didn't know this, but um, you don't actually sin against each other. You can't be like, oh, that girl sinned mm, against me. Like, no, <laughs> slow down. No, <laughs> no, she didn't. Whenever you sin, you sin against God because God's holy. And see, the problem of sin is that not only does it make us want to run from God and hide from God instead of seek him, it also creates a barrier where we can no longer be in his presence. Because God is holy, it means he is fully set apart, and sin can't be in his presence. It cannot be in his presence. And the few times we've seen the Bible where God's holiness was in full manifestation somewhere in the planet, and then somebody with sin entered in and touched the thing that was actually had his presence, they died on the spot. See, because God's holy, sin can't be in his presence, and that creates a problem. Because of our sin, we can't be in the presence of God but God wants to be in our presence. See, God wants to dwell with us. There's a promise that we learned in week one of this series, James 4.8. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. See, God desires to draw near to you. He desires for you to seek him because he's seeking you. And so there's this massive problem called our sin. And what God did in the Old Testament is he brought his mercy into the story through Israel, and he gave them a way to dwell with him. He gave them a way 
to actually be in his presence. Regardless what happened, there was now a way to be in the presence of God. And he did it through something called the tabernacle. He did it through something called the tabernacle that then led to the temple. And then in the tabernacle is where, is where the, the, the dwelling of the spirit of God sat in the tabernacle. But it wasn't as available as it is today. It wasn't as available as it, as it is to you right now. And so what I want to do is kind of look through this idea of what happened in the tabernacle and how God made himself present, how he made himself available. How he said, listen, I'm going to bring my mercy into this situation and I'm going to give you an opportunity to be in my presence. And he did it through this thing called the Ark of the Covenant. And here's how it works. We're going to read in Hebrews chapter 9. So we're not going to the Old Testament. We're going to read in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 9. It's, it's Paul's words talking to the people um, that would have understood this. And Paul wasn't, uh, wasn't Israelite. He was a Pharisee. He knew everything that was going on. He knew what the temple, he knew what the tabernacle was all about. And as Paul starts to describe the earthly holy place, what he's talking about is the reality of God's presence among the Israelites, how he brought his mercy in. So we're going to pick up Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. They'll have it on the screen. They already do. They are overzealous in the back. Good looking out. So verse number 1. Now even when the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness, for a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence or the showbread, it is called the holy place. And behind the second curtain was a second section. A second curtain because they didn't have drywall, okay? They didn't have walls. They had drapes. They had veils. They had curtains. So behind the second curtain was a second section or a second room called the most holy place. Verse 4, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered in all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, which was the representation of God's provision for Israel, how he fed them while they were in the wilderness, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Now, when you read tablets of the covenant, what you actually are reading is the Ten Commandments. And so God gave them the Ten Commandments to be a, a law for them, to be a way that they live, that if they would follow the Ten Commandments, they could find God's favor. They would find his blessing. They would live in accordance to how he wanted them to live. And the problem with the law that we know now and they knew then is that the law brings judgment. Because whenever you don't follow the law and you break the law, then there is going to be a consequence for breaking the law. And so judgment is surely to come whenever the law is present. And so in the Ark of the Covenant, you have um, the, the tablets that are in there. But the unique design of the ark actually represents God's mercy. Because, see, God didn't necessarily want us to just be judged. He wanted to bring mercy. He wanted us to dwell with him. He knew what was going on. So this is a picture of the tabernacle. In case you're wondering, like, what in the world this dude just said. This is what the tabernacle kind of as a, as a drawing that I could do and I can't. Over, again, overzealous, Okay. Um, this is how it worked. You'd walk in, there'd be an outer court that you'd be able to get into, and then all the priests would be able to walk into the holy place. Whenever they walked in the holy place, that's how it would all, uh, how, that's how it would be laid out. And then this little veil right there, that line, no one would be able to enter that room except for one person, one time a year. Because in that room is where the presence of God dwelt. The fully, holy presence of God. And what we just talked about is that God's 
Holiness means that he can't be in the presence of sin. So it creates a distinction where now there's a gap, now there's a problem. We can't be with God because of our sin. When it talks about the actual Ark of the Covenant, this is what it's looked like. This is like kind of a, an idea of what it looked like. And so it was fully wrapped in gold, and inside that ark you would have those three things, including the tablet, the Ten Commandments, right? The, the main piece of judgment that they would be living with. Now here's the incredible thing about the Ark of the Covenant. On top, those are not eagles, in case you're like, oh, sweet America. No, not eagles. Um, those are called, we're going to read about it in a second, those are called cherubim. And they're a representation of, of angelic beings covering over the Ark of the Covenant. And over underneath them, that entire section on top is called the mercy seat. Now, it's not something you sit in. It's where the presence of God would dwell. And it was the mercy seat. Now, this is why I love the fact that it was called the mercy seat. Because, see, in the Ark, in, in that contraption, are the Ten Commandments that bring about judgment. And what God did in designing the Ark of the Covenant is he said, my mercy is going to cover the judgment. And so mercy is covering judgment right here. In other words, there's a big word for it. It's called propitiation. And all you college students are like, what? Yeah, I know. I I had to go and Google that too. Um, Thank you, Wikipedia. Propitiation. And what it means is uh, it's a substitute, a lessening of the anger that someone would have towards you. And so the mercy seat would cover the judgment that everybody would have or that everyone would deserve, and it became a covering, a propitiation. So now it was possible for God's mercy to be found rather than just judgment. Now let's keep reading as Paul talks about it in verse 5. Above it were the cherubim, the eagles of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things, we, na- we cannot now speak in detail. And he's not saying like, hey, we can't talk about it like Fight Club. He's saying, we'll talk about it later, okay? These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, into the first room, performing their ritual duties, all the priests do. But into the second, only the high priest, only he goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, not without bringing blood into the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, which he, uh, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing. So what he's saying is, listen, this is where God is, and it's not open to everybody. As long as that first section is there, as long as there's a differentiation between where God's presence is and where everybody else is, then you don't have access. So the Israelites didn't have access to God's presence. The high priest did. And he only had it one time a year. It's like Christmas. I get to go in. Let's go. And he'd have to take an offering with him. And they would actually have bells around the bottom of his robe. And they would wrap a rope around his waist that would go outside of the curtain every time he went in. And if they stopped hearing the bells move, they knew something went wrong and they would have to pull him out. Because if he had any sense of sin in his presence, in his body, as he went into that place, he would be killed. Because he was in the full holiness of God in the Holy of Holies. 
It's a serious deal. See, God's holiness fully separates him from us. He's set apart. And so we got a problem is that we can't get in there. We can't get past that curtain. We can't get past that veil because we can't get past our sin. So all of us have an issue. All of us have trouble in terms of dealing with this. And see, the reason why he had to take blood in there with him is because according to the law, whenever there was sin, it had to be redeemed. But the only way it could be redeemed was through a death. Something had to die. And so they had a sacrificial system of different animals and different things that they would use that Paul talks about. Keep going in verse 9. He said, according to this arrangement of the priest being in the back and then the, 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 uh, only the high priest being able to go in, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Now look at, look at verse 11. But when Christ appeared. See, everything changed with Jesus. Everything changed with Jesus. Because here's what happened. God said, there is no way that they can be with me because they sin. So I'm going to make a way. And his name is Jesus. See, when Christ appeared, everything changed. Because Christ entered in and started to take the place of all the things that were happening in the Old Testament. The way that God designed for us to be with him. All those things, those limitations that we were kept with. Jesus started to fulfill all those things. So keep going now, verse 11. It says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, then how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Now, if you keep going, skip down a little bit to verse 22. Paul continues to talk about this, this idea of, of Christ and who he is and what he's done. It says, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with the blood. And not without the shedding of blood can there be forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Verse 24, for Christ has entered, not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he, Jesus, has appeared once for all at the time of the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting him. See, Jesus enters the picture 
And what actually happens is that he takes our place. He enters the picture, and instead of the high priest having to bring a sacrifice into the Holy of Holies, Jesus says, all right, I'm going to go into the Holy of Holies, and I'm going to be the sacrifice. The blood that needs to be shed for people to be able to access God is going to be my blood. And so he acts as our high priest, which is what Paul says in Hebrews chapter 4. They'll put it on the screen. Says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near. Let me change the language. Let us then with confidence seek. Let us then with confidence pursue. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive what? Mercy. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. See, Jesus saw our situation and he said, well, this is great for the Israelites and there's one person who has access. And sure, God is dwelling with men, but it's incredibly limited. And so because of what Jesus did, now he, in essence... He becomes the mercy seat of that ark. Because where the law would tell you that you have to follow the law or judgment's coming your way, and that judgment is death, Jesus now covers that because he fulfills the law. So now you're not bound to the law. There's nothing you can do to earn God's love. Nothing. Jesus Jesus just says, I love you. And if you trust in me, I just did everything that you need to do. It's like he said, hey, guess what? Let's swap. Let's just do a little, little tradesies, okay? I'll take your judgment. You take my life. And guess what? It's a free gift. And so whenever you don't feel like you can approach God because of what you've done, Whenever you feel like, you know, I just, I'm, I've messed up too much, I'm too dirty, I'm, I'm too far gone, I've sinned too much, I've done this to those people, I said this, I did this, I've been real dumb. God, I can't approach you. What you're saying is, Jesus, you're not enough. You're saying, Jesus, what you did for me wasn't enough. And what Jesus is saying and what Paul is telling us is, no, he did it once and for all. So everything you've ever done Think about the dumbest thing you've ever done. We're not going to have confession time, but it would be fun if we did, okay? Because we'd all be like, sweet mercy, I'm so much better than him. That's so good, okay. But if you think about the dumbest thing you've ever done, and think about the most recent stupid thing you've done, the most recent sin that you committed, and all the stuff that you will do in the future, Jesus once and for all covered all of it. You are not held to any of those things anymore if you have Jesus. He is our mercy. Where there was no way, Jesus made a way. Or as C.S. Lewis says, I'll put it on the screen, the Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. There was no way Jesus made a way. So whenever you are feeling really bad and you're having a pity party about the dumb stuff you've done, guess what? You can still seek God. Nothing you've done is going to keep you away from his presence if you have him, if you've trusted in him, if you've given your life to him. 
got to explain this to a, I guess I'll call him a friend, somebody that I've gotten to meet over the last few months. Um, I'm getting to do, uh, getting to officiate a wedding of a couple that goes to the church. Um, I don't really know if either of them know Jesus. Um, I'm not quite sure, but I know he doesn't. Uh, I make all the couples, whenever I do premarital counseling, I make them fill out a, a sheet that kind of gives me some info on them. And one of the questions I ask is, Are you follow, is the bride a follower of Christ? Is the groom a follower of Christ? Because if they're unequally yoked, I, I can't officiate that wedding. I can't condone you stepping into sin. And God makes it very clear, uh, you should be equally yoked in your spiritual, in your spiritual life, in your spiritual faith. And so she said yes, and he said no. And I was like, well, red flag. Um, we need to have some conversations. No, I didn't sit down and say, guess what? Not doing your wedding. Y'all should get married. Bye. I didn't kick him out. But I kept having conversations with them. And see, what I came to find out is that Jonathan, Jonathan the groom, he had a, he'd never really been to church. He didn't grow up around church. When he was in his early 20s, he didn't come to a place like C12. In his words, I did whatever I wanted whenever I wanted to do it. He's a hard worker. He's a nice guy. He's fun to hang out with. But the main problem is that he had no idea what was going on spiritually. So as we're having conversations, what he's telling me is, I want to try to be a better man. Like, I'm trying, I'm trying to get better because I realize the stuff I was doing wasn't helping me, and yet I was still wanting to do it. And that just sounds like I'm crazy, and I, I'm, I want to fix that. I want to change that. And so we start to have conversations. Over the course of about three months, we meet three times. And this past Monday, we met again. We sat right out there in that lobby. He came in after work. Uh, we stayed a little bit later than I was expecting, and it was completely worth it because I got to sit there and share with him the simplicity of what we're talking about tonight. He kept, try- he kept trying to wrap his head around this idea. Of, he said, I'm afraid, though, what if I mess up and then I keep messing up? Like, what if I fail at this being a Christian thing and then I just keep doing it? What if I'm not good enough at this? And I was like, oh, that right there. Let's talk about that. And I got to explain to him, I said, Jonathan, listen, here's the deal. You're going to mess up. You're going to fail. You're going to sin. But whenever you have Jesus, what you realize is you're not going to want to do it anymore. You're still going to. Your body's going to want to. But everything inside of you that's alive is going to say, I don't want to do that anymore. But you're still going to do it sometimes. And then I got to share with some, to him some of the stuff that I deal with. Like, man, I struggle with pride a lot. I struggle with pride. I struggle with trying to find myself in my work. I struggle with trying to um, impress people that are above me or that are under me, trying to, trying to look good for y'all. I said the largest struggle of my life is pornography, is lust. When I was eight years old, it was the very first time I ever saw it. And then from the time I was 12 all the way through high school and then into college, I've even brought it into the beginning of my marriage. I said, and I'm a, and I'm a pastor. I was like, dude, listen, I mess up just like you. I said, Jonathan, you know the only difference between me and you is this. We're both going to die one day. Like Newsflash, that's math. It's 100% that's going to happen. And when we die, we're both going to stand before God. Whenever it happens, 
And when I stand before God, he's going to look at everything I did, and I'm going to be judged on it. But instead of looking at me, what's going to happen is, as I stand before him, Jesus is going to be there, and he's going to put his arm around me, and he's going to say, nope, he's mine. And the only thing God is going to see about me is Jesus. But Jonathan, you don't have that. And so you're actually going to be judged on what you've done. And guess what? It's never going to be enough. The only difference is I live out of the reality of God's mercy for me through Jesus, and you just hadn't accepted it yet. And I got to lead Jonathan to Christ that afternoon. Yeah, that ain't me, that's him. Because what he eventually said was, all right, I want that. All right, man, let's go. It's like, I'm sorry, are you sure I'm not keeping you to it? I'm like, dude, this is, what, this is what I do. This is my life, okay? See, now Jonathan is going to be a spiritual infant for the next season of trying to figure out how in the world to do this. And he's going to stumble. He's going to trip. He's going to fall. He's going to mess up every possible way. And yet God's mercy is never going to leave him. See, the beautiful story about Jonathan's story is that he didn't have to get clean before he came to God. He didn't have to say, all right, Matt, I love the idea of this. Give me like two weeks to go make everything right, and then we'll come, come back. I'll buy you Starbucks. Like, we'll do it again. It was in that moment right there he realized that I need Jesus. And he didn't have to go fix anything. Jesus fixed him. That wasn't always available to us. That was never available to us unless... Like, unless you're Jewish, which I don't, maybe some of you are, unless, unless you're a Jew, and unless you were the high priest, which I know none of you are, <laughs> then you had no chance of ever experiencing the presence of God. You could never fully seek Him and expect an encounter with Him. And yet now, because of Jesus, you can. And you don't have to do anything to earn that or deserve it. He freely gives it to you because of the work that he's done. Because he became the sacrifice. He became the death that we deserve. All the judgment that you should get, he says, nope, I'm going to take it on me. You take my life. How's that for a transaction? It's called mercy. So the next time that you feel like you can't seek God, you remember his mercy for you. Because you can. And it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how long ago you did it. If you messed up 20 minutes ago, guess what? You can still go right to the throne. Go right to the cross. Go find Jesus in that moment. Or if it's 10 years later, you can still find him. See, the way that I would define in my words of what mercy is, mercy is a never-ending second chance. Mercy is a never-ending second chance. And our God is a God of second chances. And we are the people of the second chance. Mercy is a never-ending second chance. You can never run out of mercy. God's always there to forgive. As long as that's what you desire and you bring it to him, he's going to do that. So always seek him, no matter what you do. See, I know that there may be some of you in the room that you're like, I needed this. Because you might have come in here thinking to yourself, I don't know if I should be here, or I haven't come the last month because I was in a real bad place, or I've been messing up and I don't feel good about that, and you want to make a change. You can make a change tonight. You can make a change now. 
you can turn around and seek him at any moment. And see, the promise of James 4.8 is true at all times. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Now, and sometimes it may be that his drawing near as you seek him, as we finish out the series, it may be overwhelming your emotions. Sometimes it may be hitting your intellect. Sometimes it may be seen through friendships in the way that he draw, draws near to you. Sometimes it may be reading something and opens your eyes for the first time and you realize who he is. But what comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And if you believe that God isn't a God of mercy, then you got it all wrong. Because if the depth of love is seen by the intensity of the pursuit, Jesus left heaven to pursue you, and he died in the pursuit. He's madly in love with you. He gave up his life for you so that you can find his mercy. And so we want to sing a song over you. We want to have a moment for you to reflect in it, for you to worship it if you know it, but really it's an opportunity it's an opportunity to, for you to respond to what God is doing. Because right now, I know he's stirring. I don't have to look at you in the face to know those words are for me. But all of you in the room have an opportunity to really realize this mercy, this free gift, this swap, this transaction, this propitiation. God saying, you don't have to be bound to that judgment. Here, have my mercy. And then have it again. And then have it again. Lamentations 3 says, His mercies are new every morning. Every morning. And maybe you need to find His new mercy tonight. So I'm going to pray for us. And they're going to sing over us. And you can worship with us if you want. You can pray. You can journal. You can go. I mean, you do what you need to do. You be obedient to the Holy Spirit. But this is my prayer for you. My prayer for you comes from Jude 1-2. It's this. May mercy peace and love be multiplied to you. So Father, would you do that in our hearts? And may we encounter your mercy like we never have before. If it's for the first time or the millionth time, it's always new every morning. So may it be, may it be new this evening. And may we find you, God. Allow your mercy to be multiplied to us in these moments. We thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.